0: Welcome to our Polaris podcast. I'm Jeremy Whitbeck, a partner of Polaris, and I have with us Jeff Powell, our managing partner and chief investment officer. Jeff, it's great to have you today. Hey, good morning, Jeremy. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. So, Jeff, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. There was an interesting article in Barron's a couple days ago that talked about the amount of cash that uh, the uh, US population has collectively, with that number being 16 trillion with a T. And so, really looking forward to hearing your thoughts and insights as to what should people be doing with that cash, especially given the context of where interest rates are at, uh, where they are at the moment. Yeah,
1: you know, it's it's really a, uh, a pretty remarkable number. Uh, I think, you know, added to when we first saw COVID hit, I mean, if you remember back uh, in the initial uh, few um, months of COVID, we actually hit record savings rates in the United States where we were Uh, Over 30% savings rates. But this is also a lot of people that uh, I would say have made mistakes with going to cash at exactly the wrong time. Uh, So, what these 16, you know, these households with $16 trillion, I mean, you and I kind of played around with the math. That's $50,000 per person in the United States. That means my uh, my youngest should have a $50,000 sitting there. Your two-year-old should have $50,000 already to his name, and so on. And having it all sitting in cash. So we obviously know that a lot of this is is held by the wealthy, and uh, they're sitting on a lot of money, uh, waiting to put it to work and and trying to make a decision on what that really looks like. The thing that amazes me out of it, Jeremy, when I'm kind of just eyeballing it, is. That's sixteen trillion dollars. Where you're saying I am willing to lose money on this money? You know that's when you're sitting in cash, and we all know that right now money markets are, are paying virtually nothing. Savings rates are basically nothing. You put it in a checking, and you are going to get nothing. You're willing to lose almost two percent per year on that sixteen trillion. So what is it going to be that gets people to step off the sidelines and into the markets and, and really? where do they want to put their money? So, I mean, one of the things that you kind of, you and I were kind of going back and forth is, where, where do they put their money? So, you know, kind of to reverse it on you, Jeremy, we're, we're, I mean, bonds, stocks, leave it in cash, where, what are you recommending to your clients right now uh, to put that kind of money? It's
0: a great question. One that I, to be quite frank, don't necessarily always have a perfect answer for. I think that the answer differs for everyone. One of the big things that I recommend to people is to think a little bit outside the box on how they can keep liquidity within their portfolio. So, for example, one of the ways that you can do it is by having cash in the bank. And historically speaking, when you can get a decent rate of return on cash, not such a big trade off to do it that way. However, we haven't really been in an environment where you can get a decent return on cash since. What, 2012 2013 and it uh, doesn't look like that's changing anytime soon so one of the things that i recommend with people as we do their financial planning is looking at other assets that can give them access to equity so that they don't have to sit on such a big cash pile so a home equity line of credit is a great example of that where you uh, if you have equity in your home you can have a line of credit there ready. Uh, available for a time of need and you're in essence sitting then on the bank's money earning nothing and not your own and that's where i would uh, recommend then if we can earmark or carve those uh, other cash funds for longer term goals then we can start uh, investing them in real returning assets so that's that's typically what i would recommend something along those lines of course there's a lot of different uh, ways to get to that same conclusion but uh same question for you jeff what are you typically recommending to people Well, one of the first things
1: I'm talking to them about is being, you know, being correct. And I know that sounds like a really silly thing to sit there and tell somebody, but I mean, if you can sit there and tell somebody, okay, whatever we're going to do here, we're going to be right about it. Um, Sitting 100% in cash, you're either going to be right or wrong. Okay. There's, there's no in-between going on here. So what I'm telling people is, look, you're sitting on a bunch of cash. You don't know when to put it to work. So let's remove the emotion from it. Let's push in a quarter maybe a third into the market right now you know the expectations for next year within the stock market is actually very strong and 2022 for that matter so let's push this into one of our strategies let's get this money working for you and what i mean by being right if the markets keep going up you're right you push some of your money into the market and then you systematically put your money to work from there you're also right if the markets go down guess what you kept back three quarters your money you didn't put it all to work you didn't sit there and throw all you know, caution to the wind and here you go, here's all my money. You put a quarter of it to work and then you're right. You kept 75% in dry powder to put to work if the markets pull back. So either way, you're right within that. And that way you, you stop sitting there trying to, to pinpoint the perfect time to get involved with the markets, which you and I both know is never gonna happen. You now, the one thing about what we do in our jobs every day in the investment management team is it's about being partially correct. You know i you hear me saying this all the time i'd rather be partially correct than completely wrong okay well that's great you know i don't want to sit there and be all in or all out of something so somebody's sitting on way too much cash they've made the decision you know to be extreme and that's one of the things that we always talk about is to 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 move away from extreme one of the things that we you and i are, are i've been talking about uh, offline before the, this call was you know, a lot of people are also making the mistake of going into the fixed income marketplace. And they think, okay, well, you know, if I'm gonna go and I'm gonna wade into the pool a little bit here, bonds are the safe place to go and I can at least make a little bit more money there. Well, as you and I have talked about, I mean, there's not a really good place for you to go within within the bond market. I mean, if you're looking at US treasuries right now, I mean, if you're going out 10 years, you're getting a, a just under 1%, you're getting 95 basis points on your money. Inflation, it's a little under 2%, 1.7 to be exact. So you're saying that you're willing to lose seven-tenths of 1% every year for 10 years straight. Now, and again, not to, to, to be too rhetorical with, with this uh, question for you, Jeremy, but you know, if you wanted to, you could give me a million dollars And in 10 years time, I will give you $930,000 back. That sounds like a good investment. Time me (laughs) up. So, I mean, again, obviously, you know, when I say that to people live, there's kind of a laugh behind it just like you did and a kind of a smirk that you can hear, not necessarily see unless you're doing video conferencing. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what kind of investment is that? They're seeing on their statement slow progress. So in 10 years' time, their statement's gonna say $1.1 million. So they think, oh, I'm making progress, but they're able to buy $930,000 in 10 years' time. And that's assuming that inflation remains low at 1.7% also. I mean, historically, our inflation has been in the threes, uh, three and a half to be exact. So if you're really looking at it in true context and we go back to any kind of normal inflationary environment, you're really promising yourself to get really badly beaten up in this market between either currency risk or inflation risk or both.
0: Yes, yeah, so Jeff, can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on that for those that aren't as familiar with why inflation is a bad thing for income generating assets like bonds? So why is it that a rising inflationary environment is going to uh, severely, potentially severely negatively impact things like uh, bonds or other safety type assets?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that in order to explain this properly, I think that the, it's really necessary for us to kind of take two steps back and just talk, first of all, how the bond market works. So when you buy a bond, you're buying somebody's borrow. I mean, you're you're buying debt. Uh, so if you think about it, you, when you went and bought your house, I'm assuming you got a mortgage, right? Yeah. So you were the borrower, the bank was the lender. Um, and I'm assuming that at some point in time during your home ownership, that the bank sold your loan to somebody else, and all of a sudden, you know, your Wells Fargo uh, loan became a Citibank loan, or became a whatever loan. Those are the banks buying and selling different credit between each other. That goes on within the bond market too. The bond market's actually just as big, if not slightly bigger, than the stock market. Uh, people just don't realize it because it doesn't make the news nearly as much to sit there and talk about a few basis points here or there that the bond market's moving up or down and when the rates right now are as low as they are uh, the only thing that's making news is how low they are and and being able to borrow at a low rate uh, rather than to be looking at it in a different context so think of it this way you are the bank not the borrower okay you're the one who's getting the interest Not paying the interest in this case. So when you are buying a bond, you're lending money, and the way that the bond market is priced is really based upon uh, multiple factors. So kind of think about it as a seesaw. Part of you know once a bond is issued, price and and interest rates fluctuate, and uh, it'll be uh, related to that. But when you're actually pricing an original bond, just like when a bank was evaluating you for a loan, they're going to say, okay, how long is the loan? You know what is the credit quality of that person you know and and so on so they're going to sit there you know obviously u.s treasuries there's not going to be an evaluation but if you're going out looking at a municipality or looking at a corporation uh you're looking at the credit qualityness of it um just like you would for example if you were looking at foreign nations so for example italy is a lot more risky nation than say germany uh within europe um and so the pricing is going to be radically different you're going to expect to get paid more for somebody that's more risky. So if you've got a friend who was, you know, never paid their credit card bills and they've got horrible credit, when they go to the bank and try to borrow money, they're paying one, two, 3% more because the bank's worried that they're not gonna get their money back. And so uh, so you've gotta think about it in that kind of context. From there, well, I mean, most people are looking to buy bonds based upon safety. And so they're gonna buy bonds and they're gonna say, you know, okay, I want short-term, intermediate, or long-term. Again, the likelihood of you defaulting on a loan—if if, even if your credit's not great—if you did a five-year loan versus a thirty-year loan, the thirty-year time period is much greater that you're going to have the default than say a five-year. So the pricing again is going to be based upon some of this. What we're talking about, you know, again with like portfolio management, however, is how bonds fit into your portfolio, and you know, do you want risk? Do you not want risk? I mean, we could get into all sorts of other complexities of high yield which is junk bonds which are the high risk uh, part of the marketplace or you know again treasuries convertibles or just all sorts of different instruments but to make this easier let's just stick with us let's just stick with government bonds so we'll compare like us bonds to other bonds in, in other countries but for right now for example we already talked about that a 10 year treasury is earning you only about 1% per year and the reason for that is it's a very low risk investment. The Federal Reserve has lowered rates all the way down to zero. So normally the the treasury market is based upon where Fed funds rates are. And so the lower those rates are, you're basically getting a spread between what the Federal Reserve is willing to provide for you and what's going on from here. So I don't know if that kind of explains it to a degree for you, um, but once the bond has been issued, if rates go up, prices go down. So again, think about it as a, a seesaw where again, you've got interest rates on one side, you've got price on the other side. So if you and I were talking about US Treasuries at 1%, just to make the math simple, at a zero Fed funds rates, if the Federal Reserve raises rates by 1%, then the US tre- you 10-year know, Treasury, presumably should be going for 2%, not 1%. So now you're talking about getting twice the income, which is worth more money to a bond investor than if it was sitting at 0% uh, FED funds rate. So again, interest rates going up, price goes down to offset that in order to, it's because if you've already locked in a bond that's only paying $1,000 uh, you know, or, or 1%, $1,000 per 100,000, and then all of a sudden the new going rate is $2,000 per 100,000, you need
0: to discount that bond in order to offset that $1,000 difference if i were to summarize that then it sounds like the real risk the real concern is that at some point rates will probably go up from here because they're at rock bottom and when that occurs the bonds or other uh, fixed income generating assets are going to lose value because they'll just be they will pay less than future bonds issued, so they'll become worth less. So it kind of adds insult to injury, where not only are we getting very low yields right now, but on top of that, if we have principal erosion down the road, it's going to wipe out most, if not all, the return and maybe then some. Is that is that a pretty fair summary?
1: I think that's a very fair summary. I mean, a lot of people talk about owning their bonds and, and owning them to maturity. So technically, you know, that person that buys a 10-year treasury right now, Um, You know, they could lock in that 95 basis points per year for the next 10 years, not really lose principal, but lose buying power, losing opportunity cost. Um, If we were to see Fed funds rates go up and they were to then turn around and need that money and needed to sell it, they would definitely lose money on it. Uh, The the bond prices would have fallen and they would be in that situation. The biggest issue for us is when you're really kind of looking at traditional asset management and you know looking at modern portfolio theory where people are looking at what worked in days past versus what's going to be going on going forward and really when you're looking at it in this kind of context you know people are putting far too much money into the bond market um with understanding that they're going to lose money here um right now the the bond market is really the yields are very suppressed because you still have trillions And the last time I checked, it was over $10 trillion of foreign debt that's uh, paying a negative yield right now. So, for example, I mean, the United Kingdom, uh, if you buy any government-issued fixed income under five years, you're losing money on it. Not just buying power, you're losing money. If you look at the the German uh, bond market, uh, same thing. It's actually negative through all 30 years of their yield curve. Um, If you look at Italy... Now, and here's a place that, you know, typically in days past, if you wanted to pick up some high yield being involved in foreign debt, uh, Italy was normally a place that was kind of that that good mixture of risk, but you knew that they, if they were really going to fall apart, that Germany and France would kind of sneak in and, and help them out. Not anymore. I mean, their 10-year treasury is actually lower than ours. You're getting 54 basis points for a 10-year uh, Italian lira bond. If you're under five years, you're losing money. Again, negative yield. Uh, you can do the same thing with France. You can say the same thing with Japan. Um, you've got all these countries that are are kind of playing around and experimenting with negative yields, which we've really, again, only until, uh, in the last few years have we run into a situation where uh, people were
0: being penalized for putting money into safety. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And Jeff, do you mind taking a couple moments? Why do the international bond rates matter to a U.S. bond investor? So what typically happens if a country goes to negative interest rates with U.S. bonds or any high credit quality bond for that matter?
1: So so two things that are going on with negative yields. Uh, one is that uh, that government is trying to get their, uh, their population to put that money to work, to not have it sitting in cash, so to either invest it uh or to spend it one of the two uh so they're penalizing them to not have their money uh sitting in a bank account uh so that's that's part of the experiment is to sit there and say okay well let's see if we can't get this money working one way or another uh the problem with it is you know it doesn't necessarily always work that way so from there um what we're looking at is you know imagine this uh, jeremy i mean instead of being a u.s resident you're a german resident You know, if you're sitting there trying to buy something that is a secure investment uh, that's going to pay you positive interest, not negative interest, would you buy your German Bund? Uh, And I do mean Bund, B-U-N-D, where you know you're going to lose money, or would you potentially come to the United States and buy a treasury? You know, the biggest risk that you take as a German citizen doing that is currency risk then. So you you would buy the treasury knowing that we're going to make 1% versus losing money. So again, if you're looking at, let's just, again, go back to the 10-year and what we're talking about within that. The 10-year German bond is negative 0.6% per year. So we're not talking just losing based upon buying power. We're talking about truly losing over a 10-year time period, 6% of the value of your money, plus whatever interest rates are on top of that uh or inflation i should say on top of that so if you're a german citizen you're going to look outside of germany to invest that money and so when you've got buying pressure on a, a treasury again if you're thinking back to what we were saying before price and yield have an inverted relationship so let's say that you and i um, both want a cup of coffee and there's only one cup of coffee uh left what happens to the price of it if you and i both really want it it goes up Price goes up, simple simple auction, right? So back and forth, I'm gonna pay a dollar for that cup of coffee, $1.20, blah, blah, blah. Finally, one person says, that's more than I'm willing to pay and they're done. Uh, that's what happens within the ball market. It's a negotiated marketplace, uh, so back and forth. So it's, it's kind of like buying a home. Uh, it's worth only what somebody else is willing to pay for it. Uh, and it's not done in an auction situation, it's done in a negotiated uh, environment. And so when we're looking at it from this context, Uh, Really, again, when you've got more buyers and sellers, so we've got Germans, we've got uh, basically almost all of Europe is paying negative yields right now. You've got Japan paying negative yields. Um, These people are going to be looking for a better yield on their money. So they're going to come to the US. So more buying pressure means prices go up and yields come down. Um, So again, it is a yield suppression uh, that we should see continuing uh, for an extended time period until we see negative yields in foreign markets
0: go away. Yeah, that's that's all very interesting, Jeff. And to kind of uh, bring this together then, what should people be doing then within their portfolio? And I guess to state it a little bit differently, um, fixed income is typically held because of the lack of volatility. And although there are times where bonds can be somewhat volatile, they're typically thought of as a safety asset. How should people then construct their overall portfolio given this information and knowledge? Yeah, I mean, th-
1: th- that's a, a great question, obviously, one that we need to sit there and, uh, I mean, I would not take lightly. Um, it, we run into it uh, in conversations with clients where they'll come back and say, you do realize I'm this age? I'm like, yeah, I realize you're this age. You know, I'm 70, I'm 75, I'm 80. Should I be this much in equity? Um, Typically, again, like you said, Jeremy, um, when modern portfolio theory was created, um, when you know when finance was taught to you and I in the 80s and 90s um, and 2000s, really there was a rule of thumb, which is that you you know you take 120 minus your age, and that's what you should be in the equity market. So if you're 30 year old, you take 120 minus 30, you should be 90% stock. 10% bonds. And so, the older you get, the more you, know, you take a, uh, a more conservative st- uh, stance within the market. So, you go more and more into fixed income. When you can't even outpace inflation, you're going to run into a huge issue. So, somebody that's sitting there saying, oh, I want to be moderate. I'm going to go 50-50 the stocks and bonds. Okay. Well, you just said to me that you're, you're going to be willing to give up half your portfolio is now gonna earn you nothing. In fact, you're gonna lose buying power. And from there, the other half has to work twice as hard in order to pick up the slack. Now we've had a really interesting market this year, obviously with with COVID and the markets dropping as much as they did and the rebound. We obviously had a lot of turmoil back in 2007 through 2009. We had the dot-com bubble burst all during my career. So it's about a once every decade type of situation where you have, uh, you know, a lot of turmoil. Not to sit there and say, you know, 2018 wasn't a lot of fun as well during Christmas. Um, we've had other drops in the markets uh, between 2008 and now. I mean, we had 2015 was, was a tough year, 2011 was a tough year. Really the only easy year was 2017. And we still have people worried about that. But we're, what I'm really suggesting to the average investor is to really rethink what risk is, and we've written about this multiple times. But is risk, you know, a few months or even a year of downside in the stock market, or is it a multi-decade time period in which you're going to lose buying power? And you know, again, back into you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you could be in a lot of fixed income and still outpace the the inflation rate. The average yield, uh, the average return in the bond market, the treasury market, 10 years, uh, was a 9% return from 1982 to 2012, a 30-year time period in which you outpaced inflation by about 6% per year. I mean, ridiculous returns. And so going 50-50, you weren't sacrificing anything with your total return uh, for your portfolio. Whereas today, if you were to do that, again, we just talked about it. A ten-year treasury is going to lose you money with buying power. And then let's just say that you do get a 10% return just to make the math easy. That gives you eight percent after inflation, but it's only 50% of your portfolio. So you're gonna get a four percent return. If you're drawing, and again, your other part of your portfolio is losing you about one percent. So if you're going back and forth, you're getting you know under a four percent total return out of your portfolio. Uh, by being 50-50. And if you look at like, uh, I mean, you're a CFP, uh, what, what is the average that they say that you can draw per year safely?
0: I mean, typically it's around three, three and a half percent
1: these days. Okay. So the, the one that I've always heard historically is four, uh, just to use safe math, is that that was the safe rate of, of withdrawal. Okay. Well, let's even say it is three, three and a half percent. You're making no traction whatsoever with your with your portfolio. And if, if you have any emergency or if you want to go, I mean, how often do we run into people that go over their budget uh, in retirement? So all of a sudden now, you're deteriorating your net worth because you're you're not taking care of yourself when it comes to, to how you're investing. So to me, the biggest thing that I look at is I don't need to be traditional. I don't want to be traditional. I need to be thinking outside the box on your behalf as a client and making sure but the way that I'm investing my money for you is taking care of you properly. It's not, you know, again, you know, sometimes the best advice uh, is, is advice that people don't want to hear, but it's the best advice. You know, kind of like with your kids, you know, your kids may not want to go to bed at their bedtime, but when they're younger, getting a specific amount of sleep every single day is absolutely necessary. Not the most popular thing in the world, but the best thing, you know, eating one's vegetables, you know, depending on, on uh, what vegetables and how much you like them? I mean, oftentimes, you know, people view that as the worst part of their meal. Okay, well, it's still necessary. You still need a balanced diet. And we, we I mean, so it's the same thing here. It's, it's telling people, you know, what they may not want to believe or or, again, what's not traditional, but it's what's the best thing for them. So their portfolios might be a little bit more volatile than what you would see in days past, but at least it will help them accomplish their financial goals long term.
0: Yeah, Jeff, thank you very much for that very thorough answer, and I think something that we all need to really think about is really evaluating risk, and I know you put out a a few different articles on this, but when we talk about risk, we really have to to define both of them, both volatility risk, which is what I think everyone really reads about, focuses on, but also the purchasing power risk, as you stated earlier, and arguably the purchasing power risk is the big risk factor over the next uh, decade or two that um, I don't think we're talking enough about and certainly one that we're going to have to uh, be very conscientious of and make proactive decisions in order to uh, combat and eliminate portfolios. And I know
1: that we're running out of time, but I, I, I want to throw out one last thing to kind of keep it in the, in the back of one's mind here, um, because there's really kind of two other elements that are, are coming into play here. Um, we don't have, I mean, we're sitting on almost $30 trillion of, of debt. Uh, if we have the other, the next stimulus package, in uh, the kind of two, three trillion dollar levels, we'll be at that. Uh, we'll be at 30 trillion at that point. If you're talking about that much money and debt, we're kind of stuck. We don't really have the ability to have the Federal Reserve raise rates too much to combat inflation, uh, because we can't afford it from a fiscal standpoint. So the one thing to keep in mind is not only are rates low right now, they're going to remain low and, and perhaps even manipulated. Uh, for an extended time period because we can't afford it. You know, that's number one. The other thing is, if you are sitting on $30 trillion worth of debt, what's the easiest way of getting rid of that? And that's, you know, having a currency devaluation. And you're already seeing it. I mean, the US to, to Euro has already dropped by more than 5% on the year. Um, if you continue to see that go on, um, think about it in the context of, if a dollar is worth 50 cents in the future, your debt went from 30 trillion down to 15. Not that it's easy to pay off 15 trillion, but it's a whole lot easier than paying off 30. And so the other thing to kind of keep in mind with all of this is that we need to continue to grow money, even in retirement, to offset these things. And again, these are the silent killers that will come back and bite somebody in the backside at exactly the wrong time when they're later in age and they're unable to sit there and offset it. So it's best to attack this now and to attack it efficiently.
0: Yeah, Jeff, thank you very much for uh, all those insights and always, uh, as always, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us today. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up and everyone stay safe, stay healthy.
2: Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.